Welcome to the Next Level Brands Podcast, where we share stories about the food and CPG world with experts in the trenches about how to build a successful brand today. Now, your host, G. Stephen Clear. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on the Next Level Brands Podcast. Our podcast is brought to you by KitchenToShelf.com. KitchenToShelf.com is the educational arm of Next Level Brands and it's a provider of online and in-person courses and workshops for CPG entrepreneurs at all stages of growth. Whether you're an early stage startup, a local growing business, or a regional powerhouse, kitchen2shelf.com can help you scale your business on Amazon, in food service, or at retail. That's kitchen, the number two, shelf.com, what you need to know to grow. Hi, I'm Steve Clare, and my special guest today is Junia Roca, and she is the co-founder and CMO of Better For You, Latin-inspired food brand, Brazi Bites. Prior to food, Jania was a civil engineer working construction management in Portland. But when she imagined her future, she knew she wanted to take a risk on her career and was passionate about working for something that simply, rather than working for something that was simply easy for her. With a huge love for her Brazilian homeland and entrepreneurial spirit, Jania and her husband, co-founder Cameron McMullen, decided to bring cheese bread, a cherished household staple that was native to her Brazilian roots, to the United States market, and Brazi Bites was founded. It has grown into a nationally distributed brand with a cult-like following after appearances on ABC's Shark Tank and being included twice in the Inc. 5000 list of America's fastest growing private companies. Jania has been heavily involved in all areas of the business with a leading role in sales and marketing, growing Brazi Bites distribution to over 15,000 stores. She's also a skilled fundraiser, and that's certainly needed, having gone through multiple types of funding over the last decade from bootstrapping to loans, angel investments, and more. In 2018, the founding duo brought on private equity investors to help fuel the rapid growth and surge in demand for this new innovative transforming Brazi Bites as a leader in the frozen better for you food category. Welcome to the show, Jania. Thank you, Steve. Very excited to be with you today. Um, you, you know, it's, um, it's, it's amazing. We talk to people who've made that kind of, I, I don't know whether it's 2000 or 5000, but that, that level of when you get distribution at that scale, it's like, it's like a totally different business from the one you started, right? So uh, when you started out, when you were envisioning this, you were obviously changing careers. What did you start out you know, doing? Were you making this stuff for friends? Did you make it at home? Did you, you know, how, how did that come about to settle on Brazi Bites? Yeah, so what you said is so true. You know, the business at 15,000 points of distribution is a much different business than when you start out. And it takes time to get there, right? It's like, we have been in business for about 11 years now. And it has been almost like so many different businesses within this journey. Um, and it's been quite interesting. When we had the idea to launch the brand, it was sort of the idea behind mostly the product. So I grew up in Brazil eating Brazilian cheese bread. It's a staple there. It's everywhere in Brazil and South America. So think about like chips are here in the US. This, this item right. is in your homes, homemade. It's in restaurants, it's in cafeterias, it's in hotels, it's in grocery stores in the frozen format. And that's the one that we inspired to bring. And so we, you know, we love the product. In many trips of my co-founder, uh, Cameron and husband, who is American, going to Brazil, and our friends from here in the US going to Brazil start noticing we started noticing how much people were falling in love with this product. <laughs> and they would have this amazing experience in the country. 
and you know the people the the beauty of brazil and they would be coming back here to the u.s talking about the cheese so we were like there's something here and it's worth exploring we started really from scratch really small um from you know a family recipe to taking a class here in portland where we're based in the local community market um, i'm sorry in the local community college to um, understand how to get your recipe to market really sort of early you know learning the, the ins and outs of the industry and then we started putting it in stores I think for us if you look at our journey we always envision this as a frozen brand from the start so we get that question a lot oh did you pivot to frozen did you always think it was going to be that way we launched the brand with the idea of it being frozen why we wanted to scale. We wanted from the beginning to not have like, a, you know, a sort of like a, a freshly baked bakery. Oh, right, right. Right? Yeah. So like, so if you're looking at an option, you're like, okay, I love Brazilian cheese bread. I want to bring it to my market. If I'm going to sell it fresh, it will be a bakery in the local market. That was not our idea. We wanted to sell it in grocery stores. We wanted to bring this product to Americans in a way that they could understand, that was approachable, that was better for you and all of the values that we created for the brand. Right. So from the beginning, we said, this is a frozen brand. We're going to get this into the freezer section. So laser focus on that from day one. And so that's how we started. You know, we created the product, we packaged, and started knocking on doors and putting it in grocery stores. We did a little bit of farmer's market. We did a lot of events. Farmer's market turned out not to be viable. It was never really to sell. It was to to just kind of learn and, you know, mm -hmm. as people are trying the product and, and, and develop, but we, that turned out to be a very inefficient way for us to do so. And we were gaining more as we were getting, we felt like we were learning more and evolving more rapidly. If we were getting placement, even in the local co-op or, you know, the local natural store and then going demoing there, because then now we're on the, at the grocery store floor and we can taste it and kind of learn and grow from there. So that was the beginning of the brand. Did, did you do a lot of demos and, and sampling and stuff in the stores when you launched? We did a lot of demos. It was a huge part of our strategy and continues to be a, a part of our strategy today. Although, you know, we had a, we had, we all have had a break from demos during COVID. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. available. Um, but in the early days, especially, it was really important to us. So the way that we kind of deployed demo was very grassroots and founder led, which was important to us. So, you know, back in the early days, Cameron and I did everything. We would make the product in a commercial kitchen. We would, you know, sell the product. We would deliver the product sometimes. That was short lived, <laughs> but we did. At some yeah. point, we had a van and we would drive around town. And then on the weekends, we would just demo. So from Friday through Sunday, we demoed nonstop. So each one of us would go to a different store in our local market. So we would do, you know, up to six to eight demos a weekend in a local market that was small. And that, you know, started to add up to a lot over time. A lot of like learnings, a lot of listening, a lot of velocity, new consumers. And we did a lot of demos. Once we got out of our local market, we began scaling our sampling strategy. And at some point had brand ambassadors, you know, in Seattle, in LA, in San Diego. And, and did a lot of that. Once the brand got really, like, really scaled beyond, you know, the $1,000 points of distribution, then, you, you know, some of this, the system has to evolve. 
Yeah. We went away from like that program and eventually started hiring third parties. Eventually, over the years, the brand kind of started to pull back from retail demos a little bit and focus more demos in clubs. And so it's been an ever evolving thing. But in the early days, it was really critical and essential, especially being founder led, because we could hear everything people are saying about the brand. We were learning so fast and were able to evolve, you know, how they engage with the packaging, how they engage with the product. Like, what is cheese bread? What are you trying to sell me? <laughs> Does my package make sense? You know, <sighs> so it's like consumers are just telling you the truth all day. Right. So you just got to listen. Get that, to that feedback, direct feedback. Direct feedback. So that I, I consider that a huge part of our success early on in, in growing the brand. I, I, it's an interesting thing from the, um, from the demo sampling point of view, now that we, some of the stores of stuff have started back again now is, you know, for the smaller uh, chains and your local stores or whatever, they want to, man, we want the, if the founder can come in and sample, it's really great and whatever else. And then you go to a Safeway or whatever. And they're like, no, you can't sample in here. You have, we have this group that samples and, you know, thanks, but we don't need to see you because that's not, you know, it's, it's a, it's a profit center for us or, or whatever, but it's a totally different, you get, you get away from that. But the specialty stores and stuff still love to have, to have the founder come in. And, and I, I don't think there's much you can do to replace that interaction you get with people in the beginning. You know, it's, you know, whether it's just flavors or sizes, portions, I mean, there's so much you can gain from that, you know, from that back and forth. It's really, really, uh, really good. Um, in in that area, in, in in Portland, an area. Who were some of your first retail people that supported you? So here in the Portland market, we um, we have a chain called New Seasons. Yep. A lot, a lot of brands are familiar. New Seasons is a big player in the natural space and an anchor retailer here in the market. We have Market of Choice, um, yep. and also it's a Portland, you know, Oregon based chain that's wonderful to work with. And um, we also have PCC markets up in Seattle. And it was one of our, you know, our sort of like on the list here, one of the first ones to embrace the brand. And we love PCC. There's an interesting twist on our story that I think it's worth sharing that some of the sure. entrepreneurs might know. So we might have a similar story. So we launched in the Portland market. And at that time, there was a competitor here. And you're like, are you kidding me? Like someone making Brazilian cheese bread in Portland, Oregon, just like around that time. Yes. So there was this, there was this other entrepreneur who had launched about a year before us. So when we started selling in retail, we started knocking on doors and all, you know, all the local chains are telling us like, I already have this. I don't need another one. It looks exactly the same. Of course, wow. to us, it wasn't because to a founder, it never is the same, right? No, no of course not. And, 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 and we were like baffled by this. And so it was no after no for a long time. And then we started getting like a few, yes, some buyers, okay, due to like our persistence, okay, as being like next to this entrepreneur. And to the buyer's credit, I mean, you look 10 years ago, there's no reason to have two brands of Brazilian cheese bread on shelf in Portland. <laughs> no. no reason. But some of them, you know, were open to the community and said, okay, I'll give you a shot. You're very persistent. But very quickly in the early stages of the brand, we had we gotten some limited distribution in Portland and then we had to go up to Seattle because this brand had not gone up to Seattle. So we had to pivot a little bit. We said, okay, we're going to go like attack the Seattle market, go get that. And then we'll come back to our home core. You know, we'll continue to be persistent. So 
went up to Seattle and start kind of getting some retailers like PCC and, and kind of circle that market and then kept focusing on Portland. And, and then the, that competitor eventually went out of business and we took over sort of as the leading here on the market and it all worked out. But there was a big adversity that we had to face early on. Yeah, you had to be flexible in that, you know, to not beat yeah. yourself up in, you know, yeah, because limited selection, um, you know, frozen space in particular, frozen refrigerated space in itself is just hugely valuable territory inside a store and they're not making any more of it. So, you know, you yes. something has to go out when you go in always. So, yeah. And another one that I think it's no, no worthy, that's not local, but it does play in local markets, it's Whole Foods Market. The Whole Foods Market was um, a big support of the brand early on in a very local way. Um, we, we, part of our strategy, we felt like Whole Foods was a critical partner to right. get and to build um, well. And, uh, you know, in the frozen space, primarily very critical to open up UNFI and give you the ability to sell the product nationally. So we embraced Whole Foods really early. We, they embraced us. We invested a lot in those local demos at Whole Foods, created velocity and, and built the brand at Whole Foods from there. And today the brand is global and does exceptionally well, but it, it, it was many years in the making. Yeah, to, to get that get that far. Did you evolve um, the product over a period of time? Did you change your package size? Did you, you know, put it in little plastic things or any major changes from when you were doing it in the kitchen? Major changes on branding, major changes on branding. So our, our, our top seller anchor item that, that sort of ignited the, the brand that's the traditional flavor of cheese bread is now what we call the cheddar parm. And that item, the recipe, remains exactly the same as the day one, which we're super proud of. And we've, you know, we kind of like felt very strongly about that from the beginning of yep. never changing the, the ingredient sources and, and that kind of stuff. The other flavors of the product lines and different stuff were always evolving. So we had several flavors and like there was back, you know, maybe eight years ago, bacon was like so hot. Everything had bacon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we had a bacon flavor at some point that, that went away. The, and, you know, we had a pepper jacket with spicy that also went away. So the, the sort of like the extensions of the line that are always evolving to meet what's going on in the marketplace at a certain time. The branding has evolved massively, massively. I mean, if you look at, the branding over the years and it, it, it evolves with what consumers are needing, what the market's needing, what is compared, like how aggressive competition gets around us. Right. And things like that. The size of the bag has not changed. Incredibly surprising, actually, that we've kept the same. We were very disciplined in the early on to just size right. Right. For, for the freezer. So weird that remains true like 11 years later. But naming, even like at some point we called cheese bread snacks. We didn't have the word Brazilian there because we thought it was too foreign. <laughs> and then we realized that that word was what was giving us the authenticity. Well, it right. was harder to explain. It was really important. Um, and then we had, you know, flavor names and colors and positioning and how things are displayed. Constant evolution. Right. Constant evolution. <laughs> Right. Always changing. 
<laughs> that's great because you can put that on your, you know, on your like on your back wall. You can you put the evolution. This is the packaging where it started, and this this you know moves mm-hmm. up. Um, there's uh, you know always that the tendency to want to do um, you know additions and and line extensions, and everybody has that whether you're big or small because you know you're trying to get in. But I love your bacon flavor. I think idea that's that's great. It's like yeah, because bacon was like everything was just put bacon on it. It'll it'll make it better. We'll get through that. Um, so let me ask you Jean, real, real quick about I mentioned up at the beginning about uh, your role and stuff and, and Cameron's role. Access to capital is so critical to right growing any growing business, but particularly with food and beverage because it's capital intensive. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about your journey from bootstrapping to where you are today? Absolutely. So we've had a lot of experience with raising and a number of different methods of raising over the years. And um, we learn a lot. Our story is a little bit different because I feel like sometimes people look at the browser by story and they're like, wow, it's like you did that for how many years? We bootstrapped for a long time. So in the beginning, we bootstrapped the business, which is, you know, recommended often because it allows you to stay nimble. It it allows you to retain as much equity as possible. But it's not, sometimes it's not viable, right? But we were able to bootstrap for many years. For um, Then we did a number of things. We, we sort of like try to find the fit as we go on what the needs were. Um, we have, a, a, there was a time, we used to run our manufacturing plant. So there was a time that we were very focused on sort of building the plant and scaling the plant. So a lot of the fundraising was around manufacturing. We did like, you know, bank loans at one time that was backed by the, the small business administration yeah and that that was you know it was very equipment focused that's an interesting one we also did a loan with whole foods market which was very important for the brands whole foods i don't know if they have that program anymore i believe they do it's like the local producer loan program local producer loan yep i love that program a lot and it's not for those that are using a co-factor that um you know want to invest in marketing and sales but it is for those who run manufacturing and it strains your partnership with Whole Foods. So at some point we, we took a loan from Whole Foods and that was, that was very helpful. Then we started to kind of evolve a little bit and, and we started to try to raise money. There was a time that we, we were trying to raise about 400,000 for the brand to scale the brand. And at that time it was an adequate amount for us to scale a little bit. But we always joke that we really sucked at raising money <laughs> in the early days. We were really good at building our brand. We cared about building our brands, but we weren't quite there to like be good enough to communicate outwardly and to sell to other investors that the brand was here to stay. Which, by the way, I bet we, we say like we, we'd rather be that way and be growing a brand that was viable than being so good at raising money for something that wasn't viable. So yeah. it hurt. It was painful for a while because we were just, there was a time that we were like put out, we, we decided to go raise. We put a, a convertible note in place. We had everything going on and we started meeting with people and did all of those things, the road show and friends of, of friends and all the angels. We raised, I believe in the in 70 5k out of the 400 we just like could not get there 
But meanwhile, because we were so integral in the business, we were like, we don't want to spend time fundraising. Fundraising is a full-time job. We did not like have that skill at that time, which right. turned out to benefit us. However, it was stressful because we started to run low. Then after that, um, we ended up doing a transaction with a, call it a strategic partner, but it was our co-packer at a time. We met at Expo West and they said, look, we love what you guys are doing. You're scaling. We can make your product. We'll make an investment. Right. So we sort of like, was a great fit for us at the time. So we took an investment from this group and ended up like cleaning up the cap table, paying back the previous angels and all the loans and ended up with ownership that was cleaner. It was just me, Cameron, and this group. So there was a phase there. I'm almost done. It's just so many ways. Trust me, the group is like, and it keeps going. Um, so we, we go ahead and, and we, we, we raise that, we restructure. Then we go on Shark Tank. After we go on Shark Tank, we don't need to raise more money because the brand was making money. The brand scaled very rapidly in a way that was very positive. And it went from under a million dollars in revenue to 8.5. And just like that, you know, in less than 12 months. And the best part of it all is that that first year, there was so much demand for the products that we didn't have to spend any money on marketing. So there was no trade. We had to cut all of our promotions because, I mean, that's a sweet spot, right? Wow, yeah. I mean, I just want to be back there every day. And it's, <laughs> it doesn't have, it's, an, I don't know, that's a really amazing spot to be in. It's not realistic anymore for us or, you know, most brands out there. But the demand was so great that we're like, we have to slow down the velocity because we can't keep up with demand. So we cut trade. And what that means, the brand became very profitable, did well that year. So we didn't need to raise any more money. However, fast forward three years later, we did seek a, a, a deal with a private equity group because the company had scaled so rapidly that we needed actually instead, it was less about cash that we needed in the bank, but more about help to build infrastructure in the business, building a team, building right. systems, help create a long-term vision. So that was a whole nother deal. That was the biggest deal we've ever done. That was more time consuming. We had to be very thoughtful about it. And that you know, was a big undertaking that we were really happy we ended up executing on. And that sort of restructured the whole business. So yeah. that was a big, that was, that was our biggest one. Proud to say that by the time we got to that deal, we were much better raising money. We could better sell ourselves and our brand much better. We could do the deal. Right. And, and, and as you get more points of distribution, that, of course, always helps to add to the story. Um, let me ask you about um, the experience on Shark Tank. How, how did you feel about that? What, uh... It was a great experience for us and the brand. In some ways at that time, like life changing personally and business wise. And the reason for that is that the brand and where we were in our journey was perfectly timed for that exposure. We had been in business about five years. We had we were in about a thousand stores. It wasn't like we just started. Like it's not like, oh, I just had an idea, I'm gonna go on national television. Right. We had been evolving, we had like all those things we just talked about, our packaging, distribution, we were understanding the landscape. So then we get this massive exposure in a time that we really needed. When we signed up for it, we were raising money. It was part of that time that I mentioned we had a, a convertible note open and 
that same year and we're kind of like, hey, we need to raise money. We need to find kind of like the next thing for the brand. We need some help here and there. And so the show was perfect for us at that time. We felt like we also had some signs. We had, you know, at this thousand points of distribution, we had been traveling around the country, doing events, doing demos, like understanding consumer perception of the brand nationally and really start to validate. We're like, there's something here. This product is really awesome. And the way we're putting out there really resonates. However, the clock is ticking. Our industry is fast moving. It's very competitive. And if we right. don't drive velocity, you know, in a reasonable time frame, this product that's amazing that deserves to exist won't make it. You know, I, I so that was the whole premises of Shark Tank. I remember like we at that time really studying like what would make us successful. We became really laser focused on the fact that we needed to write, drive demand at store. Because there's there's so much thing, so many things you can focus on. Yeah, and, and 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 unfortunately, I think a lot of smaller companies, when you're going through that initial, you know, going from regional to maybe you know maybe getting in Sprouts or Whole Foods or whatever, there's this confusion that points of distribution means I'm really growing my business. It it does in a sense, but if you if you can't create velocity, none of that's going to stay. And to create velocity is a whole nother realm than just getting the distribution. Man, the getting the distribution sometimes is pretty easy. Uh, you know, have product, it tastes good. Okay, we don't have anything like it. I'll put you in. Wow. Now all of a sudden you got to sell the product through to a group of shoppers who've never seen it before, don't have any idea what it is, um, you know, doesn't understand pricing of it or anything else. And that, that's really, really critical. And good that you guys obviously, you know, obviously got past that. So you could, you know, you could get through that as it were to whatever that, that next level is. When you were going back and, and, and again, maybe it was Seattle that did it for you, I'm not sure, but when did you kind of come to the realization that this was actually gonna work, that you were really gonna build a brand? It was like leading up to Shark Tank, it wasn't Seattle, it wasn't Seattle. So we started to get more distribution. We became laser focused on Whole Foods. We decided that if we got Whole Foods one region and did well in that region, we would, the Whole Foods would open up markets and they were a good partner for us where consumers would understand our product and be more open to buying it. So then we start getting, you know, focusing a lot of our demo energy on driving velocity at Whole Foods to then when the category review came to play, the numbers looked strong enough to warrant yes. distribution at the subsequent region. Did that for a while, began to open doors. It wasn't always easy, you know. Um, I remember we launched at the SoCal region and the product didn't do well. I ended up getting down to LA, spending three weeks at a relative's house demoing myself and fixing merchandising and finding a bunch of problems with merchandising, outer stocks and all that good stuff that when you're small and you're, you know, far from your market. Anyway, so it wasn't during that time we kept growing, but I was mentioning to you, like, we were like, there's something here. So we would do a trade show. The booth was the busiest. We would even do a distributor show like UNFI. We remember like early in the day, back in the brand, you know, journey, we were at a UNFI show. We didn't have a broker. We were looking for a broker. We had one DC and like everybody started to freak out, like the brokers. It was like, I want to like, we got like so many brokers coming at us. Like, I want you, I want to rep, rep your brand. I want to rep your brand. Like, this is incredible. We've never seen anything like this. 
We still didn't know we were going to build a brand then. We're like, there's something here. So it was, the thought was like, there's something here, but how do we get there? How do we scale before we die, <laughs> before yeah. this brand doesn't work anymore? And truly, when we realized we were going to build a brand and the thing was going to work, it was post shark thing. Here's why, you know, under a million dollars in our industry, you're not making money. We did not have a paycheck. So we didn't founders take a paycheck for five years. It's very brutal. It takes a lot of belief in what you're doing. And it was those data points like, okay, there's something here. Let's keep yeah. pushing. It's worth going. Shark Tank was a game changer because what we thought were like, if we can get this in front of more people and scale, they will like it because a small group of people are telling us that they're like, this is awesome. Like, I love this product. Well, Shark Tank scales that to 9 million people overnight. And it's a risk too, because it's not guaranteed that sharks will love your product, that it will nope. resonate, editing, all that stuff is out of your control. We believed so much in the product and our preparation skills and what we were going to bring to the table that we felt like, okay, all we need is the sharks need to love this product. So the sharks take a bite on the freshly baked brassy bites and go like, oh my God, you know, this is delicious. <laughs> and they start going through the motions of experiencing the product for the first time. Nine million people watch that and they, the, the brand got validated by the sharks. And after that, we had this sort of like massive wave of trial driven by that appearance yep. that then we go like, okay, now we have enough trial. Now we can build a brand. So yeah. that's when. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's great. Uh, we should mention here, by the way, so, I mean, you have national 15,000 plus stores. You have national distribution in Whole Foods and people can also find it elsewhere, major retailers. Most major retailers, we, you know, have products at Whole Foods, at Sprouts, at Kroger, um, in some Costco regions, um, in Safeway, you know, just visit our locator at browsybytes.com. There's got to be a store near you. Yeah, there has to be. <laughs> it's great. Um, from, you know, you mentioned because you, you and Cameron, um, you know, started out uh, doing this together or whatever. As you guys built up kind of your team, um, how did you do that? Did you add salesperson first? Did you guys continue to do sales? Did you get a, uh, you know, a person to help you with production? How did you build the team? In the beginning, so the split was a little bit, I was always in sales and marketing, given that I am Brazilian and it was, it made sense for me to be the face of the brain and to be out there selling the reason to be. Um, and I've been kind of involved in that sort of like department and segment of the brain ever since. Cameron has been really focused on operations, backhand product creation, all that good stuff. Early days, when we start hiring people, we obviously had to deal with manufacturing so that was a priority. Then as we got out of manufacturing and, and, and the brand evolved a little bit, sales support was the next one. Yeah. So the first one was, um, it was called, it's like a sales admin under me to help me just get organized and, and, and all that, that kind of stuff. Over time, you know, obviously accounting was one. You know, back in the day, I used to spend all my Fridays doing <laughs> QuickBooks. Oh. That is an easy one to free up your time so you can grow the business, bring right. in a bookkeeper. Um, and so, and then it became like sort of like logistics coordinator to help move trucks around the country. Today, the company has 
17 people and post private equity deal, we brought in a CEO who works closely hand in hand with me and Cameron. So I moved from the CEO position to the CMO position. Okay. Yeah. Um, and Cameron continues as the COO um, of the brand. And we've added a number of individuals uh, in sales, marketing, and finance to yeah. support and scale the brand. But sales continues to be a big focus, right? We're always, that, that's where you got to grow. S- Sales-driven companies tend to grow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, exactly. uh, and, you know, it, it, yeah, because people think, well, you know, after a while, it just kind of, no, no, it needs to be, the fires need to be restroked all the time. And there's always somebody out there looking for that space. I mean, there's, no, there's another pizza company, frozen pizza company that just wants to be in those, in those freezers. So you kind of have to do that. Um, since your background was, I mean, other than being a foodie, not related to food, it was construction. Any similarities between engineering, construction engineering and building a food business? So many, so many. The biggest one is about project management. So my field Uh, free food was, well, I have a civil engineering degree. I work in uh, construction management. And it was all about building massive projects in a short period of time with a lot of moving parts. (laughs) In the case of construction, subcontractors, you know, materials and so on. And it was highly complex project. So then I come over to the food industry. So many of the skill sets that I learned then, which was, was great. You know, I, I was never born to be, be a civil engineer, to be in construction in that way. Kind of knew that, but I, I look back and I'm grateful because out of college, you're so green and you just got to learn. And being in that very sort of like intense industry taught me when I came to food, it, it, it's just complete completing projects staying on top of things all of the complexities of things it's like construction is like very complicated and complex and you're just making sure that everything falls into place just so at the right time so very much applicable to the food industry very much so especially the operation side of things but even the selling process right yeah it has some similarities of course yeah Mm -hmm. And you, you those are stay, lifelong skills. So you're gonna stay yeah. on top. Um, how did the pandemic affect the business? What did you guys have to do to cope? So the pandemic obviously impacted our business in many ways. In the beginning of the pandemic, being frozen foods was very beneficial. We, you know, had product in 15,000 points of distribution, and here comes this real resurgence of frozen foods. Right. We have been preaching the, the, the freezer for years and encouraging people to go there. It has been a process. There's a number of Better For You brands that's together with Browsy Bites bringing interest back into the freezer. The pandemic immediately, overnight, everybody wants frozen foods. So that's like, wow, that's awesome. We've been working towards that for a decade. So the beginning of pantry loading was beneficial to the brand. We have the distribution. We are in the place where the type of food that people want to shop. So that was like a great start in the, despite all of the sort of like challenges that in, everybody was dealing with. What's going on around me, right? The world going remote and, and all those things that impacted everyone. Yeah. As the year went by, we faced more challenges, like many better for you brands, especially. And we really felt, you know, the, the lack of the, 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 the lack of, the inability to be able to demo um, impacted right. us. 
we are a brand that while we have, we're very sizable now, we are still being discovered by most consumers. Our household penetration is still very small. There's a ton of opportunity there, which means that we have to continue to be introducing the brand. If you pull demos from us, it became harder to do that. Um, we also really felt like it was, we, we launched a lot of new products. We did not have the trade shows anymore. Right. Selling into buyers on Zoom or via phone. Some don't like to show on, you know, come up on camera was harder. And category reviews got pushed out. Resets got canceled. And so all of those things and, you know, the, the company went remote. We had to, um, you know, navigate that and, and find our groove back. And, and we did, you know, we did, we did well last year. We grew a good amount. We're proud of it, but, but it was, you know, we, there's a lot to navigate. Yeah. And, and glad that you got through it. I mean, you know, it's like, we you, got, know, <laughs> you know, um, we got I, through it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we were watching all the comparison stuff on economic data and everyone that comes out, it says, but by the way, remember that this is economic data from, you know, March, April, May of 2020. So not really an app, you know, the jump year to year is not what you need to be looking at. You really need to be looking at 2018, 2019, and 2021. So it just kind of, you know, whatever your sales chart did during pandemic, smooth that off because it's not, you know, it, it wasn't reality in that sense. That's um, right. But Most some things three months, yeah. Some things have probably changed and one of them probably is people who've experienced um getting quality foods that are that happen to be frozen uh convenience-wise are probably going to stick with that, you know, they're going to visit that aisle. They're probably not going to ignore it after, you know, uh after everything is is uh, calm whenever we reach post pandemic, which I don't know when that will be, but hopefully that, you know, somewhere not too far down the road. So I agree. And what we've found over time is our base velocity has gone up. And so right. that's been great. Um, and and that, that's because of that, you know, being discovered and people continue to come back to the brands. So that's a positive indicator. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the good side of Frozen is, is you have shelf life. The bad side of Frozen is you have shelf life. So if I take it home, I don't have to eat it this week. You know, if I take home cinnamon, fresh cinnamon rolls, they got three or four days and that's it. That's They're right. gone. You got to work right. that. Yeah. Um, so uh, w w without revealing any secrets or whatever, kind of what's next down the road for Brazi Bites? So we, you know, we are in growing mode right now. We are about, you know, two and a half, three years post investment and have been building our team really nicely and have been rebuilding and revamping internal systems to scale the brand. And part of that, including launching a lot of innovation. So we're really building a better for you Latin inspired food company and transitioning from just, you know, the cheese bread and building, a, a, you know, a viable, scalable food brand. We have launched a number of products this year that we're very excited about. We just got into the frozen breakfast category. We ah. launched uh, breakfast sandwiches that just got into Target a few weeks ago and are coming to more stores soon. Ooh. Okay. We're launching a, a product called Pizza Nadas, which is a sort of like a pizza bite version of our empanada line. That's awesome. This product is incredible. It tastes incredible. And we're just constantly evolving and growing and thinking about like the next innovation. And we're very excited for the trade shows coming up. Yes. Yes. That's going to be, I can't, I, I thought I would never say this, 
I can't wait <laughs> to get back to a trade show. It's like, really? Same, same. You know? Yes, yes. Back in the day, it was like, oh my God, another trade show, you know, like how right. just so, and, so demanding. And now we're like, we can't wait to see everyone. And it was funny because the last expo two years ago um, that I was at, I was working with a client at the booth for the majority of the time. And normally I'm walking the show, talking to people and seeing clients, whatever. But this time I was committed to working the booth. And I was like, oh my God, this is tiring. How do these people do this? And you know, somebody comes back and goes, oh, you remember I was here yesterday? And it's like, no, I don't remember you were here yesterday. Are you kidding? It's like, I would, I would, I would love to recall our conversation, but of the 10,000 I've had, I don't remember yours. So, but yeah, but it'll still be just, I think, good to, uh, good to get back and see people. And also, it's so critical in food and beverage to actually taste stuff. Hello, that's what it's about. 100%. So, 100%. you know, and you mentioned about doing some of the buyers doing phone calls. They don't even want to do video, right? And I'm thinking you got the buyer and the buyer out in the little kitchen thing or whatever. They've got their toaster oven. You don't even know if they're preparing it right, right? They're tasting it and they may have undercooked it by you know 20%. It's like, no, that doesn't work. You can't control that, it. So. We found that very issue to be a, you know, a challenge for us. We now previously, pre-COVID, our sales team was highly trained and highly incredible at cooking it perfectly, of coming with a just so perfectly freshly baked and delighting that buyer and then telling the story into why we created and then coming in with everything else, right? Promo planning, all that good stuff. So our success rate at winning distribution was very uh, exceptional. And then here comes COVID. They're not there. The buyer's cooking maybe. You know, um, samples are being shipped with dry ice and they get laid and then maybe they sat on the floor for a while and, and now you're trying to convey the message and they're not, they're com- not nearly as engaged because you're not in front of them because we're all right. humans. Yep. And, uh, and, then, and then you lose them, you know, and it's crazy. So I think that's such an important component of that we're excited to come, you know, have to yep. come back. And it's not going to come back the way it was, but. No, but. It'll be at least be better, you know. It will be better. Yeah, there was speaking of the empanada things. There was a, several years ago. I worked with a company that did a sort of a cheese-filled empanada, although it's Mexican-themed kind of thing. And and as long as it was prepared in a conventional oven, toaster oven, or convection oven, it performed very very well. If it was put into a microwave, which you could do, it tended to blow the end out, and the cheese all came out. <laughs> It's like just terrible performance. So you, if your buyer, if your buyer had a regular oven, it was great, you know, or you had a regular oven, the thing. But if you were the poor salesperson trying to do this, and all you had was a microwave, it was like, oh, please don't, please don't explode. You know what that happen? Totally. Yeah. Yes. You can do it. Um, let me ask you, Junior. Uh, uh, we, we try to elicit from guests um, our words to grow by segment. Um, that basically, since most of our audience is fellow entrepreneurs, uh, people in the industry, kind of something from your journey in, in building the brand and stuff, advice or counsel that you would want to leave with uh, fellow entrepreneurs? Do you have something for us? Yeah, that's a great question, Stephen. I appreciate you asking that. I think the, if I go back in our journey of 11 years and all of the ups and downs and, and successes and challenges, I think one thing I want to leave the the, the entrepreneurs and the founders with is, is sort of the, the phrase embrace adversity. Aha. Uh-huh. Yes. Nowadays, I feel, you know, adverse, we all go through adversity 
And Cameron and I both have gone through a lot of adversity and, you know, our early childhood years and building this brand. And we look back and we, we really realize that a lot of like what we've been able to achieve was due to those, you know, the adversity. The example that I gave you earlier about the Portland market, I am launching right. this product yep. in my own local market and it's not available to me. So what do I go from here? And at the moment when you're leaving those experiences, it feels very challenging and very painful and it is, but you have to just keep going and embrace that and find your way through it. Because over time, you're playing the long game, right? You play the long game and you embrace adversity. Things tend to work out in your favor. That's awesome. And that is great. Yeah, great advice. Because you are going to run into those things and you're going to have to have to deal with them. And you guys obviously have and very successfully. Well, Janina, hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. So glad we finally got you on the show. I've been talking for a while and, and getting our schedules together has not been easy, but you've been busy. So, you know, building a brand and that's uh, that's awesome. Thank you so much. This was fun. It was nice talking to you, Steve. And no problem. We'll have you on again soon. And, and by the way, thanks to everybody else out there for joining us today on the Next Level Brands podcast, part of the Next Level Brands CPG community. If you have a growing firm in food, beverage, health and wellness, or even small goods, you should be part of the Next Level Brands community. Education, resources, workshops, and founder coaching, and more. Information available at nextlevelbrands.com. That's next with two X's. This is Steve Clear, and we will see you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Next Level Brands podcast with G. Stephen Clear. Learn more at next with two X's levelbrands.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Next Level Brands email list or subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode.